0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, Friday, January 22nd, 2021, after many discussions this past week in the Christagenia forums and chats, I thought that perhaps it is an appropriate time to present The Day the Word Became Flesh, a review of a paper by Clifton Emmeheiser. Of course, I will have a lot of things myself to say on the topic. Countless men have attempted to understand the Genesis account of creation, which begins with a statement that God created the heaven and the earth. And then the first actual utterance ascribed to God is let there be light before it goes on to describe his actual creation of the heaven and preparation of the earth for habitation. Several verses after the proclamation, let there be light, we see the sun, moon, and stars were created, which are the only sources of light perceived by man other than earthly sources such as fire or man-made light. Therefore, from the Genesis account alone, we cannot know what that light of Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 is, where God had said, Let there be light, and where he first distinguished day and night, even before the sun, moon, and stars were created. Of course, we can't understand the Genesis account of creation at all without the words of Christ because, as it is attested in Matthew chapter 13, Christ had come to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That's the first mistake that men make attempting to understand Genesis chapter 1 or any of the book of Genesis is to do so independently of the gospel of Christ. So that's impossible to do. But these things which we see in these first few verses of Genesis, these are certainly not contradictions in a Genesis account. And in spite of the fact that many fundamentalists of the past have insisted that the creation account is absolutely literal and even scientific, It should be rather apparent to Christians that the events of creation were explained in a manner by which the full meaning and truth of at least some of its statements would not become apparent until the revelation of the gospel of Christ. Neither is the creation account complete, as it does not describe the creation of things which are not regularly manifest on the earth, such as wicked spirits or angels, whether they be good or evil. The words of Christ in Matthew chapter 13 inform us that the Genesis 1 creation account was not meant by God to be a complete account. Yahweh our God, the God of creation, who is also God the Father in our New Testament, is invisible. But it becomes evident later in history that from the beginning of the world, he also knew that he would have to express and even manifest himself in the world which he created. A God who is alone may have no need for spoken or written words, but if he is to create man, if he wants man to understand his acts of creation, and if he is already intended to interact with the man of his creation, then the first thing he must create is language, even if the creation of language is not mentioned explicitly in Genesis, like the creation of angels is not mentioned. So, ostensibly, The word of an invisible God had to be created first, so that he could communicate and be understood by both men and angels. The first words which God is recorded as having uttered in Genesis chapter 1 are, Let there be light. But that light is not the sun, stars, or moon, which are created sometime and several verses later. Several days later, as a day should be understood in Genesis. However, it should be evident that beyond the bare ground and the empty heaven, before anything else which we see, which we now see, was created, Yahweh God first created both His Word and that Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 light which could not yet be distinguished as there was not yet any sun, moon, or stars. Then, thousands of years later, Paul of Tarsus referred to the man Yahshua Christ as the firstborn of every creature, and we see nothing of Christ in the account of creation. This is found in chapter 1 of his Epistle to the Colossians, where he wrote, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meat or fitting, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, he being Yahshua Christ. He created all things. Who is the God of creation? And he is before all things. And by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For reason of Paul's words, men have frequently sought to identify Christ in the scriptures of the Old Testament as a person other than God the Father, and every attempt to do so is tenuous or even contentious. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, Christ is described in several ways. First, he is described as the Word made flesh. And then he is described as the light come into the world. So we read in John's opening verses, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that mention of God there has a definite article attached. So we mean, or we know, what God is meant. Yahweh God, the Creator God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were through him, and without him was not even one thing. As Paul also said, all things were created by Christ. That which was was done in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. Yet the darkness comprehends it not. Here we see that Yahshua Christ is the expression of, and the manifestation of God in the world, just as we read in Genesis of the Word, which said, Let there be, describing the creation of all things, was also the expression and manifestation of God in the world. And just as the light, which was created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, has never been seen or identified by man. Here in John chapter 1, It is identified in Christ, once again betraying the fact that the true light is the presence of God in the world. So Christ himself professed in John chapter 9, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Recently, someone we know has contended that Christ was God only because he was created in the image of God. And that is a failure to understand the nature of Christ, as Adam was also made in the image of God, but Adam clearly was not God. Adam was created first among men. Yet Christ, a man, is called the firstborn of every creature which is better translated, is better translated as the firstborn of all creation. And in other places, he is also identified as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This once again shows us that even before man was created, Yahweh God knew that he would manifest himself as a man within his own creation. paul had written in hebrews chapter one another description of christ in relation to god and he said who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person so right there we see that christ is not his own person he is the express image of god's person and upholding all things by the word of his power, because he is that word made flesh, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, because the being of God is greater than the body of a man. However, the being of God is invisible. Being made so much better than the angels, as he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they, by inheritance, of course, being God of the flesh, he was entitled to that. No plain man can say that, not yet. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So Christ is not a person separate from God. Rather, Christ is the image of God's person, as the invisible God is not a person, but he has chosen to manifest himself in the world in the person of Christ. The Greek word for person in that passage is actually hypostasis, which is substance, or what in the eyes of man is real physical being. So of people we have to use the term person. But we cannot use the term person of God before he becomes Christ, and Christ is his person. If Christ is the substance of the person of God he is not the substance of himself he is not a person independent from God he is the substance of God therefore if you want to see God just like he had told Philip you see God when you see Christ there's no other way for man to see God So the Apostles John and Paul each credited Christ with having created all things. And once again, Christ must also be a manifestation of the God of creation. The truth of this conclusion is in turn corroborated in the fact that it was God who created the world in Genesis. And later in Scripture, we read in Genesis chapter 6, And Yahweh, so we know what God created that world in Genesis. It's the Lord in the King James Version, but in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And Yahweh said, I will destroy man whom I have created. So if Yahweh created man and Christ created man, if Yahweh created all things and Christ created all things, and there's only one God Christ is that God. He is the person of the substance of Yahweh, but he is not his own person. The Trinity is a failure. The teachings of the Trinity is a failure. And then much later in Isaiah chapter 45, we read, For thus saith Yahweh, the Lord, in the King James Version. Yahweh in Hebrew that created the heavens, God himself, so Yahweh is God, there's no other God, that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, the Lord, the King James Version, Yahweh in Hebrew, I am Yahweh. And there is none else. There is none else. He created the heavens and the earth. There is none else. There's not some other God in this Godhead that created these things. Yahweh created them. Therefore, Yahweh and Yahshua Christ must be one and the same. They can't be two or two that are part of three. There is none else. Which word don't you understand? If all of these scriptures are true, and there are many others like them, these are only a few, then this is the only valid conclusion, that the word in Genesis chapter 1, which said, let there be, is a manifestation of God in the world. And Christ, being that same word, made flesh, is also a manifestation of God in the world. He is not his own person. He is the image of the person or substance of God. The light of Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, which could not be seen or identified by man, was never revealed in Scripture. Until the coming of Christ, who was the light came, the light come into the world. Yahweh God, having created all things, there is only one creator, and his word says that there is no other. So if Christ is later credited with having made all things, then that is an explicit admission on the part of the apostles. Both John and Paul, I should really probably say an explicit assertion by both John and Paul, that Christ is the earthly manifestation of that same creator. We do not need Roman Catholic sophistry, 18-letter words, or pagan Greek philosophy in order to define what is God. As the scripture perfectly defines God for us, we only have to believe the scripture. Yahweh God, Yahweh our God is one God. He is one with Christ who is the image of his person. He is one with the word. He is one with the true light. He is one with the rock of the desert, the pillar of fire, the burning in the bush, and he is one with the Holy Spirit, which also emanates from him. In Genesis chapter 1, it is the Spirit of God which moved upon the waters when God said, let there be light. So with this understanding, we will now present and review a paper by Clifton Emmeheiser. Which, according to his records, was first completed, I don't know when it was started, it may have been November, December of 99 when it was started, but it was first completed in March of 2000. So it was probably among the first papers that I had proofread for him, a role which he had offered and I accepted in very late 1999. So this... Is the day the word became flesh by Clifton Emmaiser, so Clifton begins by saying that probably one of the most difficult subjects to understand in all scripture is the incarnation. When we speak of the word with a capital W, naturally we are speaking of Yahweh. Many are somehow under the delusion. That in some way, Yahweh the Father had a son similar to the way a natural, fleshly father would have a son. This is not at all what happened when the Word became flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14 says the following concerning all of this. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then Clifton has an ellipsis. Full of grace. And then he has a parenthetical remark. And truth full of grace and truth. Clifton has the word favor in parentheses following the word grace. The translation, I'm sorry, my throat is stuck. The translation of charis, the Greek word charis as grace is not always appropriate as charis or charis suggests physical beauty rather than the kindness or goodwill bestowed upon man by God. Today we use grace as, um, as a word describing physical beauty or eloquence or, or beauty of motion. But the Greeks also use that same word, not only to describe those things, but also describe the goodwill or kindness and in the New Testament, the goodwill or kindness bestowed upon man by God, which is really favor. Now, Clifton discusses glory, even though he at first omitted the parenthetical remark after the phrase, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, but he is now about to explain that remark. He says, if you will notice very carefully, The words in parentheses in the King James Version, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, are enclosed in parentheses. Immediately, there should sound a warning signal, and that is not true. I first read that concept in other early identity writings. I don't remember who but it didn't the idea did not originate with clifton there are many parenthetical remarks made by the original, original authors of our new testament by john by luke by paul that doesn't mean that they don't belong it only means that they are thoughts that digress from the general narrative but they are nevertheless necessary So, parenthetical remarks aren't bad. I don't know from where Clifton got that idea, but it was around, and this was very early in our relationship, so I guess I just couldn't help him with the things that I know now, right after 20 more years of study. So... If you will notice very carefully, the words, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, are enclosed in parentheses. Parentheses, I'm sorry. Immediately, this should sound a warning signal. As the writer is referring to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, and quoting it out of context. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that either. And... I don't even think I pulled Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, but I did look at it preparing for this podcast, so I will chastise myself and go get it. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. Now, if you want to think that this is a direct reference to that, I really don't think so, even though they are loosely related that John isn't necessarily referring to that, but that's okay. That's a matter of opinion. If it was a direct reference, I'm sure that John wouldn't have been citing it out of context, but Clifton thinks it's a reference, so he's saying it's out of context, so I'd have to disagree with Clifton. I'm sorry. I love you, Clifton, <laughs> but I just have to do it. He goes on and says, actually. Someone only succeeded in causing confusion on the matter by adding these words in parentheses. For Joshua was not the only begotten of the Father, at least if what three Luke 3.38 says is true, Adam which was the son of Yahweh. So here I must be critical, but in March of 2000, I did not have the knowledge with which to help Clifton, which I had acquired through my studies over the subsequent years. There is nothing wrong with the parenthetical remark which Clifton suspects here. It was not added to the text, and there are no indications in any of the ancient manuscripts of any variations at all in John 1.14. But looking at my books... I have to go back and, when I review these papers, which Clifford wrote, because I proofread them, I feel a responsibility to go back and and look at when this was written and where I was along in my own studies. Looking at my books, I had acquired my copy of Bayer's Greek-English Lexicon in May of 1999 and the Liddell and Scott Intermediate Greek-English lexicon in October of that same year. I acquired my copies of the Septuagint and Hatchet-Redpath's concordance to the Greek Septuagint in December of 1999. So I was not even a year into my early studies of Greek. Much later, in January of 2003, I acquired my first Novum Testamentum Greca and began to translate the Epistles of Paul for a second time that same year. Getting a copy of the Nestle A-Land NA27, I immediately realized that I had to go back and translate the Epistles of Paul for a second time. So where Clifton contended with the meaning of the term monogenes, where it is translated as only begotten here, I certainly may have agreed, but probably could not help him at the time, even if I was aware that he needed it, which I probably was not. Maybe one day, if I ever unpack the copies of correspondence which I have in my prison papers, which I still have and which I haven't unpacked after 12 years, I will know more about how we interacted. But now it is probably not so important. In my recent commentary on John chapter 3, titled The Only Begotten is Not the Only, I explained that monogenes is an idiom for beloved one or most loved, presenting evidence from the Greek Septuagint and from the meaning of the Hebrew word from which it was translated into Greek. In some Old Testament passages, the translator of the King James Version understood the idiom that monogenes is representative of a Hebrew idiom for most loved, not for the literal meaning, only begotten. And there have been commentators who are not far off base when they say that monogenes is sort of like the Latin word or the Latin phrase sui generis, which means one of a kind. So even though there is a large class of a particular kind, the sui generis or the monogenes stand out in that kind or are special in that kind. The translators of the King James Version understood the idiom in some of the Old Testament passages in which the corresponding Hebrew word appears But in the New Testament, they ignored it entirely. If Clifton had this information in March of 2000, or in the months prior to that, as he was writing this paper, I am certain this paragraph would have read quite differently. This paragraph in his paper. So continuing with Clifton, he is still disputing the errant King James translation of the term monogenes in reference to Christ. And he says, as a matter of fact, Yahshua is rightly referred to as the second Adam, citing Romans 5.14. While Yahshua is referred to as a second Adam, and both Adam and Yahshua were sons of Yahweh. With Yahshua, it was in a different sense. For Yahshua was actually Yahweh himself in the flesh, and Adam wasn't. It is important to see this difference between Yahshua and Adam, for Adam was not Yahweh in the flesh. It is very necessary that we understand these important basic truths. The Jews re- reject Yahshua Christ as the Messiah, but they also reject the very concept of the Messiah the Anointed One, or the Redeemer of Israel. Christ himself addressed that in Matthew chapter 22, where we read, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then does David in spirit because David wrote this in the Psalms. How then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, said unto my Lord. Now in the Hebrew of the Psalm, where it says, the Lord said unto my Lord. The Hebrew word for the first occurrence of Lord is Yahweh but the hebrew word for the second occurrence of the word of the word lord is not yahweh it is adon which is a generic word for a lord or a master in hebrew and this is psalm 110 that christ is citing the Lord said unto my Lord or unto my master Yahweh said unto my master Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool If David then called him Lord or master the word Adon but nevertheless it would it would be unheard of in ancient In the context of the ancient Hebrews or Israelites, for a father to call a son master is just impossible. It just wouldn't happen. People would think you were mad calling your son Lord. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? Why would David call his son Lord? That wouldn't happen. And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither does any man from that, neither darest or durst is darest, any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. They couldn't answer him. So we read also in Isaiah chapter 44, Thus saith Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. And besides me, there is no God. There is one God, Yahweh. There are not three gods in one. There is one God, and Christ is the image of his substance, as Paul says in Hebrews. Then, in chapter 45 of Isaiah, Tell ye, and bring them near, yeah, Let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? (coughs) Have not I, Yahweh? There is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. There's no Tribune of gods. There's no three individual or three person panel of gods in some imaginary Godhead. There is no God besides me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. So, once again, further on in Isaiah chapter 54, for thy maker, now Christ was called the bridegroom, the groom of the bride. He was called that by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, speaking in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit of God, called Christ the bridegroom. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friends of the bridegroom will just hang out and be happy for him, or, or however he said it. I'm paraphrasing. Christ called himself. The groom, the bridegroom, in the revelation and later on in the gospel. Isaiah chapter 54 For thy maker is thine husband. This is written after he gave the children of Israel a bill of divorce. Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer. Everybody sees Christ as the redeemer. Yahweh here is saying that he's the redeemer and my Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. That is Yahweh, God the Father, God the Creator, attesting that he is Redeemer, Savior, Creator, God, and Lord, and there is no other. Yahshua Christ, being King of kings and Lord of lords, must therefore be Yahweh God incarnate, and not some separate but equal person. On some artificially contrived Godhead, which is a fictitious construct of man. Knowing that Yahshua Christ is a manifestation of the one and only God, there is no God left for those who reject him or for those whom he did not come. Now, in my notes, and and I thought about it, but I didn't do it because I already have over 10,000 words here. I didn't really address this word, Godhead. Perhaps I'll add it in after the program. There are two Greek words translated as Godhead in the scripture. And the one word is Strong's number 2304, and it's Thais. And Thais, according to Liddell and Scott, and the way the ancient greeks had actually used the word Thias describes what is of or from the gods in their pagan worldview so it's what is of or from god or issuing from god or what is divine because it comes from god so yahweh being god the godhead describes what is of or from god What is of or from Yahweh? And the Holy Spirit is a part of Yahweh, and it's of or from Yahweh. It's not a person of its own. That is a ridiculous view of Scripture that's refuted at every passage where the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Yahshua Christ is not a person of his own. He is the image of the substance of that same Yahweh God. And he came forth from God by his own words. And he had no will of his own. He did the will of the Father by his own words. Only a fool could think that this this trinity of three independent and co-equal gods That is absolutely refuted by the scripture. Christ never did his own will. By his own mouth, he professed only to do the will of the Father. Not having his own will, but doing the will of the Father, he is the Father in the body of a man, just as your body, you would hope, does your will. The other word translated as Godhead is Theotetis or Theotes, which simply refers to divinity. In the Greek worldview, it was the state of being God. But there's only one God. So that state of being God belongs to Yahweh and to nobody else. <laughs> so those two words translated Godhead Even their true meanings in the Greek language do not leave room to add other gods, which are not Yahweh, because Thais is what comes from God, and Theotes is the state of being God. Properly, we would translate it as divinity. Why do we have to make up a new word, Godhead? In order to describe this, we do not, so you don't find the word "godhead" in the christogenian New Testament for that reason, and I made that decision over ten years ago whenever no when i when I had translated Colossians chapter two, verse nine, most likely in two thousand and three, continuing with Clifton. Up until the time of the Incarnation, Yahweh existed in his realm, and Adam-Man resided in his realm, for they were two entirely different entities, even though one was created by the other, up until that time. But with the advent of Yahshua, Yahweh and Adam-Man were united into one individual. The implications of this are so far-reaching in nature that all the resulting Ramifications cannot be covered in this short article. The important principle we must take special effort to remember is, while Yahshua was the very Yahweh singular Elohim, and I will explain that shortly, at the same time he was the very Adam-Man, and once this union with Yahweh and man had taken place, it has never since been separated nor shall it ever be. Throughout the course of his ministry, Clifton sought ways by which he could continually express disagreement with certain heresies that had been introduced into Christian identity. Some of those heresies can also be found in mainstream denominational churches, and some of them can't. Some of them are actually pretty much unique to Christian identity. As soon as we make a catechism and lay it down as incontrovertible dogma, like the Catholic Church says, then we could never fix our mistakes. So, not having a catechism, we are open to the introduction of heresies that we must examine, and if they're not true, if they don't repair mistakes we may have made, then we must reject them. One of those heresies is the idea That because the Hebrew form of the word for God, which is El, is usually plural or Elohim, where it refers to Yahweh, that there must be more than one God. But that is not true. For that reason, for many years Clifton wrote Yahweh singular Elohim rather than Yahweh God in his papers. The word Elohim, in reference to Yahweh, is a plural of majesty, which is also sometimes called a royal we. I even use it in my writing very often because I don't don't like using I all the time. And I don't like appearing as some sort of egotistical psychopath using the word I all the time so I struggle with that. So the royal we, the royal we, or the plural of majesty, was also employed by neighboring peoples in reference to their own gods, as ancient inscriptions attest. Where Elohim is used of Yahweh, the accompanying verbs or adjectives are singular, proving that while the grammatical form of Elohim is plural, It is being used to describe a singular entity where the apostles quoted passages from the Old Testament. In the Masoretic text, the term for God, Elohim, is in plural form, but it is singular in the writings of the apostles and the corresponding translations of those same passages in the Septuagint indicating that the apostles, as well as the ancient translators, understood this plural form to refer to a singular God. But Clifton dealt with that his entire, practically, I mean, he started it after a few years, three, four years perhaps, after his ministry began, Actually, this indicates maybe two years after his ministry began, Clifton started writing Yahweh singular Elohim instead of Yahweh God, and that's why. Now Clifton continues under a subtitle. The key in John one fourteen is the word dwelt, and this is an important key. It really is, because it leads us to prophecies which Yahweh had made in the Old Covenant, or in the Old Testament, and I will get to them momentarily after this one short paragraph. The Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald on page 1468 comments as follows. He dwelt among us. It was not just a short appearance about which there might be some mistake or misunderstanding. God actually came to this earth and lived here as man among men. And I give William MacDonald much credit for understanding that. But then again, he's not a Roman Catholic. The word dwelt means tabernacled or pitched his tent. His body was the tent in which he lived among men for 33 years. William MacDonald was my only source for Greek grammar, aside from Liddell and Scott, Joseph Thayer, and an interlinear Bible by George Ricker Berry. He was the only source for Greek grammar which I had before I translated the Christianity New Testament. He had a very excellent book, Greek and Chiridion. The shame is that William MacDonald is also a trained Judeo-Christian, and therefore he's a universalist, and he doesn't see what we know as the Israel identity truth in Scripture. He's, wow, it's hard to overcome that programming, I gather. When you see things their way, you can't see them our way. When you're blinded by Trinity, you just can't get where Yahweh says, there is none other besides me in Isaiah. That's sad. This tabernacling among men, this word dwelt. McDonald said the word dwelt means tabernacled or pitched his tent his body and MacDonald recognizes this in this citation his body was the tent in which he lived among men for 33 years that's absolutely true this tabernacling among men was promised in ezekiel chapter 37 in relation to the establishment of a new covenant where we read from verse 26 the words of yahweh Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Cross-reference this, Isaiah thirty-seven 26, Cross-reference it to Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yahweh God's not coming with a tent. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel. Well. In the New Testament, we're sanctified in Christ. Here it says, I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel. I don't think that there are three schizophrenic gods bickering back and forth in this Godhead about who's going to do what. I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel. When my sanctuary, that tabernacle, shall be in the midst of them forevermore. And this is the meaning of Emmanuel a name which we see in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, and in Matthew where we read concerning the birth of Christ. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord, of the Lord, by the prophet, saying. Now the prophet was speaking of Yahweh, the Lord. There was no other Lord to Isaiah besides Yahweh, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God is with us. So as Clifton had said, Yahshua Christ is the earthly tabernacle of Yahweh himself, the express image of his substance. Now Clifton continues with other citations discussing this same thing the adam's clark commentary on the bible abridged by ralph earl page 898 says of the word dwelt and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us the human nature which he took of the virgin being as the shrine, house, or temple in which His immaculate deity condescended to dwell, and that's the story of Scripture. As Paul of Tarsus also said in 2nd Cola—I'm sorry, Colossians, there's only one, Chapter Two—that Christ is the fullness of the divinity bodily, that as much of God as you could squeeze into a man. Yahweh put into his tabernacle, Yahshua Christ. This commentary, I'm sorry, we have to go with one more. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, in their commentary on the whole Bible. Page 1027 has this observation. And dwelt, tabernacled, or pitched his tent, a word peculiar to John who uses it four times all in the sense of a permanent stay they should have said who uses it four other times because it's here in John one fourteen, all in the sense of a permanent stay and they cite Revelation chapters 7 12 13 and 21 where the same word is found and they go on to say, which is to their credit, because it's pretty good, forever wedded to our flesh, he has entered this tabernacle to go no more out. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is not quite honest concerning the verb skenao, which is dwelt in John one fourteen, While the verb form only appears in John, here and on those occasions in the revelation there is a noun form which has the same implications and which regards Christ where paul used the word the noun skenē the the noun form of skenao paul used the word skenē in Hebrews chapter 8 and he wrote now of the things which we have spoken this is the sum We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, that's an allegory, but you can't imagine that you could see God, Yahweh God, sitting on that throne because Yahweh God is invisible. Yahshua Christ is the express image of his substance. (coughs) Yahshua Christ is the visible nature of the invisible God. He's not a different God in the Godhead. He's not a co-equal God. He never did his own will. If he was co-equal, he would have professed to be doing his own will as God. He never did that. He only did the will of the Father. Because he is the Father in the flesh. So when we see this image of a throne in the Revelation, we can't imagine to see the lamb next to the throne and some old man called God sitting in it. Because God, Yahweh, is invisible. Christ is his image. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you have not known me? Speaking not of himself, speaking of the Father. Wow. Wow. If you can't get this, I'm sorry. You just don't have the spirit. You just don't have it. You don't belong here. Don't listen to me. Hang up now. Shut your computer off now. Throw it out the window. I'm sorry, but I just don't understand how Christians can't get this. And imagine it as three gods, which is an old Catholic compromise with those fucking kikes. That's what it is. Which leaves open a space for Jews to claim that they worship God that's apart from Christ, because Christ is some other person in the Godhead. That's bullshit. Going back to Hebrews, I'm sorry for the digression. (laughs) I I try to contain myself, but sometimes I just don't get the stupidity and the insolence. Now, of the things which we have spoken... This is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ, which the Lord pitched and not man. And Paul used that word for Lord. Curios, he used it interchangeably, as did the apostles throughout the gospel. Ho, Curios, the Lord, as we would say in English, was used interchangeably, interchangeably throughout the New Testament to describe both Yahweh, the Father in heaven, and Christ, the man on earth, the same title without even a second thought as to how Christ would merit the same exact title and dignity and honor as Yahweh, unless Christ was Yahweh. Paul used the same term again, tabernacle, skene, in Hebrews chapter 9 but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this building and Paul was referring to his body which is that tabernacle of God promised in Ezekiel chapter 37 Peter in chapter 1 of his second epistle used a similar form of the same noun to describe his own body, as Paul had also in Hebrews chapter 13 of the bodies of men. Christ is not a separate person from Yahweh God. Rather, Christ is the tabernacle of Yahweh God among men, as well as the express image of his person or substance. So Clifton continues under another subtitle, Tabernacle destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And he says, by the way, Strong's number, the strongest number for the word dwelt in Greek is 4637, and it means tent. And that's what skenao means. But actually, it's a verb. It means to pitch a tent. And the passages we have just cited. In those passages, the noun for tabernacle means tent, but that's okay. Clifton could be excused for that. So he continues. As you may have noticed, Adam Clark used the word temple. We will now go to John 2, verses 19 through 21 for this phase of this narrative. Joshua answered and said unto them, the Jews, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, I have another digression here that is not in my notes, but I believe it was in the prophet Ezekiel, I'm fairly certain, where it was described upon the fulfillment of the apostasy in Jerusalem when the Babylonians were about to destroy the city and the temple the first temple, it was described how the essence of Yahweh witnessed by Ezekiel was seen departing from the temple. And that was more or less symbolic, but that's how the prophet described it. And it's legitimate. So Yahweh departed from that brick and mortar temple just before it was destroyed. And he never came back he didn't come back to the 70 weeks or second temple of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. It was gone. Without the Ark of the Covenant, if you really want to think about it and understand the law and understand what Paul had said in Hebrews, even, of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, which was atop the Ark of the Covenant, without the Ark of the Covenant, there is no proper propitiation for sin, according to the law. So the entire time of the second temple period, even though they they had good intentions and they were going through the motions for the most part and doing what they thought they had to do for the most part, there was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no mercy seat. There was no propitiation for sin, period, according to the law, because they were under the law so that tabernacle that temple didn't return until christ was born or as clifton explains later in his paper until mary had conceived by the holy spirit so destroy this is temple and in three days i will raise it up then it said the jews forty and six years was this temple in building which proves it was also really the third temple, because the second temple, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, only took about five years to rebuild. And it will thou rear it up in three days? And then John adds, but he spoke of the temple of his body. Clifton says, you will notice here, he didn't say spirit only, but his temple body would be raised up in three days. This can be confirmed in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, where he said after his resurrection, Behold, my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. And Clifton has a parenthetical remark there. Also see John 20, 20, chapter 20, verse 20. And in that passage we read of John, And when he said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So, continuing with Clifton, Not only did Joshua have a body of flesh after his resurrection, but we can be assured we will also have bodies of flesh like his after our resurrection. The point which I am trying to drive home at this juncture is... Yahweh is still dwelling in the flesh body he received as a result of the virgin birth. And that is true, since Christ is certainly going to return in the body just as the apostles had seen him depart, Acts chapter one. So Clifton continues, though he overcame death through it, which we will do also. When the word became flesh, It was to be forever. Not only did he become flesh, but through that flesh, he became our kinsman. The kinsmanship is entirely essential and imperative to understand redemption. And it absolutely is. For this reason, Paul had written in Hebrews chapter 2, For both he that sanctifieth, meaning Christ, Even though Yahweh said in Isaiah that he sanctifies us, so he must be the same as Christ. Or we have two sanctifiers, and once we have two sanctifiers, we have a problem. For both he that sanctifieth, meaning Christ, and they who are sanctified, meaning Israel, are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren in spite of all their sins. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church, or the assembly properly, will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me, a quote from Isaiah. For as much Then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, so he must have been Yahweh God incarnate, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. But he took on him the seed of Abraham, and that verb, being in the medium voice, may have more fully been rendered, took upon himself, he took upon himself the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, In all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Of course, Christ being king, Christ is also, after the Melchizedek priesthood, the legitimate priest. Christ is the high priest. He is also king, ruling over his people. Christ taking upon himself the seed of Abraham. He must be God in order to ha- have made that conscious decision. Not simply some man. Born to somehow become God. This is actually one of Clifton's longer papers, and as he is quite thorough with what he is about to say, I will refrain from all but the most necessary comments, as it is a topic which can go on for many pages, where he continues under the subtitle Yahweh Marries Israel. We cannot understand the idea of Of redemption, unless we understand that Yahweh married Israel. This wedding took place in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 17 and 18, as when both the people and Yahweh took their wedding vows. Clifton reads, Thou hast avouched Yahweh this day to be thy God. I won't say singular Elohim every time it appears from this point forward. I will just say God. Thou hast vouched Yahweh this day to be thy God, and to walk in his ways, and to keep his statutes, and his commandments, and his judgments, and to hearken unto his voice. And Yahweh has vouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he has promised thee that thou shouldest keep all his commandments. While I will refrain from the details. The account in Deuteronomy chapter 26 only reinforces the earlier ceremony of the Exodus chapter 19, which is very close in form and substance. It's also very close to the actual traditional English wedding ceremony in form and substance. I am sure, I can't prove it, but I am sure, that the wording of the wedding ceremony between a man and his wife probably was modeled after what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 26 and Exodus chapter 19 in the traditional ceremony. In modern times, with feminism and marriage equality. They've taken out the words promising to be obedient. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. And and that's destroyed our society. Continuing with Clifton, he now explains this passage in his own words, that passage from Deuteronomy 26. In other words, Israel was asked, do you take Yahweh to stay, to be your God? And they answered, we will. Yahweh was asked, Do you take this people, Israel, to be your peculiar people? They answered. Clifton has Yahweh answered. I I don't. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm right. Clifton's right. I'm wrong. Yahweh was asked. Do you take this people, Israel, to be your peculiar people? Yahweh answered and said, I will. Sometimes I screw up when I read ahead of what I'm reciting. Therefore, Israel became Yahweh's own possession. With this, there came a husband-wife relationship between Yahweh and Israel, which is true. Yahweh would protect the people, he would protect the nation, and provide for them as a husband does a wife, but Israel must obey Yahweh and do what he desires since they had to subject themselves to their husband. It's that simple. That's the traditional marriage relationship. That's how a household, a godly household should operate. As the wife raises the children and keeps the house, and as the husband is the breadwinner and the protector of the house. Therefore, Israel became Yahweh's own possession and is a husband-wife relationship between Israel and and Yahweh. And Clifton says we do not have any record where Yahweh ever covenanted or married with any other people as he did Israel. There simply is no other. To verify that this was actually a wedding that took place between him and his people, let's consider some passages of scripture which prove this was actually the case. Clifton Cites, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 14 and 20. (coughs) Turn, O backsliding Israel. I'm sorry. Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh. For I am married unto you. And if they turn, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Then in verse 20, surely... As a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith Yahweh. Then Clifton cites Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32, immediately after the promise of a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. So Clifton responds to these passages and he says, once we understand this husband-wife relationship between Yahweh and Israel, then we can begin to understand what redemption is all about. This husband-wife relationship went well at first, but then Israel began to break her marriage vows by incorporating pagan religions, and thus adulterating the true tenets of Yahweh. Because of this, it became necessary for Yahweh to divorce Israel for her unfaithfulness. And of course, those pagan religions had actually included the things such as sodomy and fornication, which were contrary to the law. They weren't just hanging around with Thor's hammers and mead and and having a good time. They were having sex with other races at the altars of Baal and begetting strange children, mixing their race and committing sodomy. As Tertullian put it, they were worshiping the genitals of the priests. Whether they were men or women, they were worshiping the genitals of the priests And as Paul of Tarsus said, the things that they do in secret were disgusting, and we shouldn't even mention them. So doing this, Clifton is proving the fact that when the word became flesh, that means that Yahweh God himself became a man. As he planned to do from the beginning of creation, knowing that in order to keep his promises to the fathers and to free the children of Israel from the penalties of the law, that he would have to live and die as a man, but that he would be resurrected and live forever so that they could also live forever. To accomplish this, he had to die as a man. Yahweh had to die as a man and no proxy or any other so-called God, could die in his place. So Clifton continues to describe this, and he says, now let's see some scriptures which confirm the reason for the divorce, and that in actuality, Yahweh did divorce Israel, starting with Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. Then he cites Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which is the law. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, Let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And now he cites Isaiah chapter 50, Thus saith Yahweh, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it, to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Long after he wrote this paper, in 2006, or perhaps a little earlier, Clifton began reformatting many of his papers so that they could be published on the internet at israelelect.com. The young man who created that website needed PDF copies in 85 by 11 format, which he put on the website as, as as articles he didn't have actual web pages of articles like you see at Christagenia he only had a web page of links that all linked to pdf articles so clifton began while his articles were all in pdf format in the format of pamphlets that would fit on an eight and a half by 14 inch piece of paper put it on both sides and fold it up real neat and stuffed into envelopes to send out on his mailing list which was mostly prisoners but which had a lot of people that were out in the free world clifton decided that he was going to switch to this eight and a half by 11 inch format and reformat all his papers and that was in maybe 2005, 2006. Originally, some of his articles were published at a website called ChildrenOfYahweh.com. That website went defunct. And the gentleman that's the young man that started Israel Elect had saved that website. Israel Elect was created in 2002. I have owned it since 2012, courtesy of our dear friend, General Mosley. It was in his hands, but he wasn't the man that made the website. So it's a complicated story, right? So Clifton, I guess, having to re- reformat this paper for publication at Israel Elect, he decided to add this note. <laughs> Clifton also added some notes to other papers around that time as he was doing that, to other older papers. This note addresses another heresy with which we have often contended. And he writes, note added by author. Clifton was always um, expressive like that, right? September 12, 2006. Today, in Israel Identity. There are many trying to do away entirely with the tribe of Judah. (coughs) I'm sorry. I know that Clifton here is addressing clowns like Russell Walker and Buddy Johnson. I don't know if my listeners today even know who any of those people are. And he goes on to say, But you will notice that Yahweh also married Judah. Otherwise, Jeremiah in chapter 3, verse 8, couldn't have said, Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. It should be strikingly obvious that it would have been impossible for Judah to have played the harlot had not Yahweh married her also, nor could Judah be called Israel's sister by Jeremiah. Those who are attempting to do away with the entire tribe of Judah haven't yet discerned the difference between the good figs of Judah and the bad figs of Judah as explained by Jeremiah. And until they grasp the difference, they should learn to keep silent on the subject rather than to openly display their ignorance. And wow, there are so many heresies in Christian identity, and we've been addressing them, as you can see here, for a long time. That's why it's a horrible thing when we start taking up Catholic dogma and calling it Christian identity, or imagining that it could possibly be compatible with Christian identity, because Yahweh was married to Israel, Yahweh divorced Israel, Yahweh promised to be married to Israel once again, and if Christ calls himself the bridegroom of Israel, then he must be Yahweh, And I don't understand how so many identity Christians cannot get that. Yahweh did marry Judah as well as Israel, or he would not have mentioned Judah in the promise of a new covenant. There are other heretics who claim that Yahweh never divorced Judah, but we read in Jeremiah chapter 23 where he says, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying the two families which Yahweh has chosen, he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people that they should no more be a nation before them. Then in Ezekiel chapter 23, we read of the divorce of Judah, where it says, And the Babylonians came to her be, to her in the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoredom, and she was polluted with them, and her mind was alienated from them. So she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness. Then my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister, referring to Israel. Yet she multiplied her whoredoms in calling to remembrance the days of her youth, wherein she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt. For she doted upon their paramours, whose flesh is as the flesh of asses and whose issue is like the issue of horses. So they're basically mules, they're mutts. Thus thou callest to remembrance the lewdness of thy youth, in bruising thy teats by the Egyptians for the paps of thy youth. The entire rest of that chapter, Ezekiel chapter 23, describes the divorce of Judah. So continuing with Clifton. Now that Yahweh had married and divorced Israel, where in this story does it bring us? Being divorced from Yahweh, Israel could no longer call herself by his name. Therefore, she became known by other names, Gentiles being one of them. At this stage of the game, things look hopeless, as neither Yahweh nor Israel can legally marry again. And there is more to it than this, as Israel was also the subject was also subject to the laws concerning fornication and adultery. And by that, Israel was liable to death, all of Israel. Yet even in spite of that, Yahweh had promised in Hosea chapter 2, in verse 19, And I, the Lamb, which is the bridegroom, and I will betroth thee unto me for ever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know Yahweh. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh. I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil. And they shall hear Jezreel. Jezreel means Yahweh sows. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. Jezreel, Yahweh sows. And I will have mercy upon her that had not attained mercy, because the children of Israel all went off into captivity. And I will say to them which were not my people, because he rejected them, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. And who will they be talking to when they see the bridegroom? Christ. Thou art my God. They must be talking to Yahweh in the person of Christ. Because Yahweh is an invisible God without person. Christ is the person of Yahweh, as Paul said. Yahweh said that he, not his son, would betroth himself to Israel forever at some point after they were divorced by him and carried off into Assyrian captivity. Furthermore, for that to be even possible according to the law, Yahweh the husband and not some son or some proxy would have to die to fulfill that promise. The only way to rectify this is to accept the fact that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh God incarnate and not some mere proxy or some other person as a God on an imaginary Godhead. So Clifton continues, The only way, by law, that either Yahweh or Israel can remarry is if one or the other's spouse were to die. To verify this, we shall consider Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And this is not quite right. Clifton should have said that the only way by which Yahweh could once again marry Israel was to die. And I think he meant that when he said that either can remarry. But he left it open for confusion the way he worded it. Israel, the divorced wife, can remarry under the law. But it is also true that Israel was under the penalty of death for the sins committed while married the first time for which she was put away. As we read in Leviticus chapter 20, and the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, and this refers to all those nations and all those strange gods that Israel had cleaved to The adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. So rectifying that, Clifton cites Romans chapter 7, where Paul wrote, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Of course, Israel was an adulteress long before Yahweh had actually issued that bill of divorcement. So either one or the other had to die. But for the promises to the fathers to be kept, which was the very purpose of Christ according to Luke chapter 1, then it was Yahweh who had to die and not Israel. So that Israel could be released from the law of the husband, as Paul had explained. (coughs) I'm sorry. That is exactly why Paul had made that explanation. Now Clifton speaks of redemption in the same manner in which it was prophesied in Isaiah. Redemption is a very simple story then Yahweh came himself in a flesh to die so that he could remarry Israel by the death of Yahweh. The requirements of the law were satisfied. perhaps Clifton may have said only. the death of Yahweh. Now he continues under yet another subtitle. Only a kinsman can redeem. Now that we understand the divorce phase of this relationship, let's go on to the remarriage part of it. It is very important at this stage that we understand it is only a near kinsman in Israel who can lawfully redeem her. This is clearly set forth throughout the entire Bible, especially the New Testament. But let's consider the law of kinsman redemption as found in Leviticus chapter 25, from verse 47. And if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwells by him waxes poor, and sells himself under the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of the stranger's family. After that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him. Or, if he be able, he may redeem himself. Remember that the children of Israel had sold themselves into sin. As it states in Isaiah, where is the bill of your mother's and mother's divorcement? Or to who have I sold you? You have sold yourselves into sin. And of course, I'm paraphrasing. So to get out of sin, Yahweh had to die to free them from the penalties of the law and then somehow buy them back so that he could betroth themselves to him as he promised. And he does that as his own son, fulfilling all the requirements of the law, which only God can do to be his own son. Only God, only Yahweh God can do that. And there's a deeper story behind that. Continuing with Clifton, at this stage of the story, we know that Yahweh enjoined himself with adam into one unified entity, the Son. We, we know also that this was necessary in order to become our kinsmen. Hebrews 2, eleven as Paul explained. We are also now aware of the necessity of this relationship and the sacrifice of his life needed in reconciling Israel as his bride. The Roman Catholic Church and the early Christians that developed this Trinity doctrine had no clue. They were Go think about it. They were replacement theologians. They had no clue of Israel identity, and they did not understand this narrative in Scripture. They didn't understand that they were the ancient children of Israel, or at least many of them were. I don't know that all of them were. Some of them, I suspect, were probably kikes. They were probably Jews. Or Edomites or Canaanites. Alexandria was a very mixed up place. Even Strabo of Cappadocia recognized that. These early Christian writers, they didn't understand Christian identity. They didn't understand Paul. They created these doctrines basically based on error cuz they had no clue about the relationship between Yahweh God and the children of Israel that it was not going to be broken they thought God cast away the Jews for not believing him and 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 would would join himself to a bunch of gentiles that he never knew before nothing that comes out of the catholic church could possibly be right because catholic Roman Catholicism is not, and Greek Orthodoxy is not, apostolic Christianity. It's not the Christianity of the apostles, of Christ, or of the prophets. It's contrary to the apostles and the prophets. And you think you're going to get truth out of it? Are you kidding me? Yeah, sure, they might say things that are truthful once in a while by mistake, but their doctrines aren't true. Original sin is bullshit, and replacement theology is a bigger lie. The Trinity is the biggest lie of them all. It's basically idolatry. But that's the end of that rant. And if a sojourner waxes rich by thee, and you end up getting sold... Into slavery, one of your kin may redeem you, an uncle and uncle's son, any next of kin of your family may redeem you, or if you are able, you may redeem yourself. So the law of redemption is kinsman redemption. Clifton says at this stage of the story, we know that Yahweh enjoined himself with Adamman into one unified entity. we also no. This was necessary in order to become our kinsman Hebrews 2:11 so that he could be our kinsman redeemer. Otherwise, he's not our redeemer, and Isaiah is a liar. So Clifton says we are also now aware of the necessity of this relationship and the sacrifice of his life needed in reconciling Israel as his bride. Over the years, we have all heard the story of his birth portrayed repeatedly, especially at Christmas time. Clifton's getting kind of warm and fuzzy here, which is rare for Clifton. We have heard these renditions reverberated continuously in Christmas carols. We have been thrilled again and again at the announcement of the angels to the shepherds in the fields of his birth. We have been mystified and intrigued concerning the wise men following the star to Bethlehem. Our hearts have been melted by the manger scene coming alive and vivid in our minds. I love Clifton, but he rarely showed such emotion. And as many times as we have heard the story, we still desire to hear it all over again. But as majestic as the story of his birth is, it was not the time the word became flesh. And now we're going to go off on a digression, and perhaps some of this is necessary, but the name of the paper is The Day the Word Became Flesh, so Clifton's going to get into some calendrical issues and things like that that we'll just have to hang in there so that we can get through this paper. I'm sorry. (laughs) To me, it was a little boring just to read. I love Clifton, but he gets kind of technical here, and wow. He says, the very instant at which the word became flesh is when the very first DNA of Yahweh began to intertwine with the very first DNA of Adam and man uniting in the very first living cell to begin the birth process. And with that, of course, I agree that the word became flesh at a con- at the conception because a child is born at the conception the child is created, not at birth, an abortion of white babies is just wrong it's murder it's sin the very first cell to unite in this way was the identical time when the word became flesh and this all happened at what we would consider conception this is called the incarnation there are some who believe that in some way mary became pregnant by the sperm of yahweh and he had a son by her this presents problems If this were true, Yahshua would not represent the one whom Israel was previously married. I think Clifton's in conflict with himself a little bit here, but I'm not going to argue the metaphysical details. The scripture says Yahweh himself became flesh, the word. Therefore, the sperm theory cannot be true. Science knows today that each single cell of the human body has two sets of 26 chromosomes, or a total of 46. I will now quote the World Book Encyclopedia, Volume 9, page 192D, and Clifton kind of argues over this, but then he settles on the other side of the argument without realizing it, I, I don't know, quoting that encyclopedia, he says, Every human body cell contains two sets of 23 chromosomes. These two sets look very much alike. Each chromosome in one set can be matched with a particular chromosome in the other set. Egg cells and sperm cells have only one set of 23 chromosomes. These cells are formed in a special way and end up with only half the number of chromosomes found in body cells. As a result, when an egg and a sperm come together, the fertilized egg cell will contain the 46 chromosomes of a normal body cell. Half of the chromosomes come from the mother and half from the father. With this in mind, we know then that Mary supplied 23 chromosomes from her egg cell and Yahweh supplied the other 23 chromosomes from himself without having normal sexual intercourse. And of course, he didn't, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. If these scriptures are true, the same Yahweh who created the entire universe, which is infinite, thousands of light years in all directions, if you believe nasa i guess I'm, I'm not going to comment on that i'm really just joking i'm sorry yahweh condensed his entire being into 23 chromosomes which was then united with mary's 20 which merit Mary, with mary's egg and its 23 chromosomes yahweh's power which is called his holy spirit and with that i agree it's only an essence or or a projection of power which, or energy, which is Yahweh God. It's not a separate person, which is ridiculous. Yahweh's power, which is called his Holy Spirit, brought all of this into play. If Yahweh implanted Mary with an entire fertilized egg or embryo, which would certainly be possible for him, he is God, then the scriptures may not be accurate, where they call him a son of David, or the root and offspring of Jesse, or where Paul says that he took upon himself the seed of Abraham. Furthermore, if, as some charlatans claim, the so-called Godhead is three separate persons, consisting of a separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And since Mary had conceived by the Holy Spirit, then Christ should not have called God his Father, but only the Holy Spirit. So we see that only a fool should believe the so-called Trinity doctrine. Jesus is not a nigger. He knew who his daddy was. If he said God was his Father, then the Holy Spirit is not his Father. But if he was conceived by the Holy Spirit then the Holy Spirit must be from God. It cannot be its own distinct separate person. Only an idiot would believe that trinity. Now Clifton continues under another subtitle. Finding the time of the incarnation. This is a rather simple thing to figure out. I don't think so. It's not that simple. I'm sorry. But that's okay. I'm not going to argue with Clifton too much. He really is trying to find when the word became flesh. This is a rather simple thing to figure out if we can once again find the correct birth date. The most common method is to count 280 days backward from the birth at which one would determine the onset of the last regular menstrual period of the woman. While this would give a fairly accurate prediction for a birth, it does not take into account the normal period of time for ovulation to take place. Usually, ovulation takes place from 12 to 16 days from the onset of the last menstrual period. Therefore, we would normally subtract about 14 days from the 280 days to have an estimate of the time for conception, or 266 days before final birth. Although in the case of the Virgin Mary, this rule probably would not apply as she did not require the usual fertilizing of the sperm of a male. Yet Yahweh would not likely alter the natural timing of these events. That's conjecture, but that's okay. I believe we can safely figure conception took place 266 days before Yahshua's birth. Also, there are serious laws concerning a woman while she is considered unclean. That's seven days after the menstruation ends. A woman is unclean for 14 days each month, according to the law. It is doubtful that even the Holy Spirit would violate such laws. Perhaps Clifton is belaboring some of this, but he had several heresies which he wanted to confront here in his paper. So he continues under a new subtitle. Establishing the time of birth. He says, I will be gathering most of my information from the Companion Bible, Appendix 179, and the Birth of Christ Recalculated by Ernest L. Martin. And I remember Clifton sent me a copy of this book by Ernest Martin, which I found many good things in. I did. At the time, I had read a few books on the Hebrew calendar and related subjects, and I vaguely remembered that this was one of the better ones. But I would not promote the Companion Bible, as Bullinger had received much of his learning from the Talmud and other writings of the Jews. So, returning to Clifton. To start with, we can be very sure Joshua's birth did not happen at the Christmas season, as generally believed. And, of course, I agree with that. It had to happen in the late summer. Most of all who have studied the subject seem to agree generally that Yahshua was born near the Feast of Tabernacles about 3 or 4 BC. There were some very unusual things happening during this period which should serve as markers to help us calculate the proper time. From The Birth of Christ Recalculated by Ernest Martin, we get the following on page 90. The year 2 BC was one of the most important in the career of Augustus. Speaking of Octavian, Augustus Caesar. It was the silver jubilee of his supreme rule over the empire, and the year in which the Senate awarded him the country's highest decoration. There was no year like it for celebration in Rome. And since the significance of the festivities involved the entirety of the empire, there can be little doubt that similar anniversary ceremonies were ordained by Augustus and the Senate for all the provinces. Clifton says, if you will but remember the Bicentennial of the United States in 1776, it will give you some idea of what was going on throughout the Roman Empire in 2 B.C. If you will check any encyclopedia or history book, it will tell you Augustus, or Octavian, became the very first Roman emperor in 27 BC. A footnote on page 90 from the same book says, The year in which Augustus was granted the title, Pater Patriarchi, was of real significance to all in the Roman Empire. This year was the culminating point in the career of Augustus. 27 BC in a parental remark, plus 25 years equals 2 BC. With such an important year coming up, Clifton says, we can see why Caesar Augustus would decree a census of registration to find out how many people were subject to him, citing Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Naturally, the census would take place during the year just prior to the silver jubilee celebration. Or three BC. Now Clifton cites an what I believe is an error in the Companion Bible, and he says, The Companion Bible, Appendix 179, places Joshua's birth at September 29th, 4 BC. This cannot be correct. The birth of Christ recalculated by Ernest L. Martin on page 33 states. However, we know from an astronomical calculation that Passover in 4 B.C. was on April 11th. Clifton says, and I don't really know all his sources for this, if they're all from Ernest Martin, I don't remember, but he's citing and then he's giving his own comments, which may be based on the same material. Clifton says, this can now be verified by computers. If we take April 11th, 4 B.C. as a starting point, and subtract 14 days to arrive at Nisan 1, the first day in month of the Hebrew calendar, it would be equivalent to March 28th, 4 BC. Then if we add 177 days, or 6 moons, we will arrive at September 21st, 4 BC, or Tishri 1. By adding another 15 days, we arrive at Tishri 15, which would be the Feast of the Tabernacles, or October 6th. 4 BC. If as the Companion Bible claims, Joshua was born on the first day of Tabernacles, the date couldn't have been September 29th, 4 BC. The Companion Bible then counts backwards 280 days and arrives at December 25th as the date of conception, probably from superstition. This would also be in error, as 280 days would bring one to the time of the beginning of Mary's last menstrual period, rather than the conception. If one would count back 266 days from September 29, 4 BC, that would make the potential conception January 6, 4 BC, and not December 25, 5 BC. Remember that Clifton's paper is the day the word became flesh. He says, while I have not checked I'm sorry, these are my own notes. While I have not checked all of the possibilities and verified all of these details, because I really don't even know where to start, I'm not an astronomer, I would stand by a 3 BC date for the birth of Christ for reasons that I've explained in my commentary on the Gospel of Luke when I discussed Luke chapters 2 and 3. Because that coincides with Christ being 30 years old as he starts his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius, as Luke says. And we see that in Luke chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 23. The 15th year of Tiberius began in mid-September of 28 AD, shortly before Christ would have turned 30. So as he proceeds, Ernest Martin will agree that 3 BC was the year of the birth of Christ. So with that in mind, Clifton continues, Augustus's silver celebration, not the only game in town. Not only was 2 BC the silver jubilee for Augustus, but it was also Rome's 750th birthday. I will pick this up from a footnote on pages 90 and 91 of the birth of Christ recalculated by Ernest Martin. And to cap it off, 2 B.C. was also the 750th anniversary of the founding of Rome. Professor E.J. Bickerman calls attention to the fact that the Fasti Capitolini, which is the list of magistrates of the Republic compiled under Augustus, reckoned the founding of Rome to 752 B.C. We now see a double reason for Augustus declaring a census. Maybe that is why the word census is used in the plural. Now, under yet another subtitle, Clifton writes, there is a December 25th connection. And he says, from the birth of Christ recalculated on page 159, then on December 25th two BC, when the king planet Jupiter came to its stationary point in mid-Virgo, the Virgin, it would have been seen stop over Bethlehem as viewed from Jerusalem. The Magi then went to Bethlehem and gave the child, now a pahidion in Greek, meaning a child, and not a brephus, which is an infant, as we see in, in Luke chapter 2, the gifts they brought from the east. And Martin did well to notice that by the time that the Magi came to Bethlehem, the infant was indeed a child. And Joseph and Mary were renting a house rather than staying in a barn. So the events in the childhood or the infancy of Christ described in Luke are described differently than those in Matthew. Luke is describing, in Luke chapter 2, he's describing the younger years, right after Christ was born, and he's still an infant, where Matthew from The Visit of the Magi is describing something that happened perhaps a year or two later when Christ is a small child and no longer an infant. When we see the incident of the Magi coming to Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary were renting a house. They were no longer in a barn where there was a manger. And we read that concerning the Magi in Matthew chapter 2 and in verse 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. Now, a year or so before that, maybe two years before that, Joseph and Mary couldn't find an inn, so the Christ child was born in a manger. So this is a year or two later, right? And the Magi guy come into the house, and they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So, continuing with Clifton, this is not to be confused, Ernest L. Martin contending that this star must have been seen. And December 25th of 2 BC would be perhaps 13 to 14 months after the Christ child was born when when the Magi saw the star. And then they had to travel to Bethlehem, which was probably, since being Magi, they were probably somewhere in parthia in the parthian empire perhaps in persia or the ancient land of the medes so they had to travel to jerusalem that would take them a month to do to get together and get their gifts and travel to jerusalem upon seeing the star now the magi are in jerusalem worshiping the christ child it might be 15 months after he was born very plausibly and and these manger scenes in the traditional nativity are are, um, set up like Christ had just been born when even the accounts comparing Matthew and Luke refute that. So that's a digression, but it's just another observation about how wrong the traditional church has been concerning the scripture. They don't get anything right. This nativity scene with the Magi is bullshit. The Magi didn't show up for another 15 months. And you could figure that out just reading Matthew chapter 2. Okay, I'm sorry I keep having these outbursts. But all of this is pretty simple if you just sit and read the scripture and believe what it says. So Clifton says, This is not to be confused with pagan Christmas, which is celebrated today. It would appear if we want to commemorate this season, it would be well to limit it to the wise men and the star over Bethlehem scene without the manger on greeting cards and displays and delete the term Christmas. Should we observe it on today's calendar or the old Hebrew calendar? At the time of the incarnation and birth of Joshua, Judea was under two calendars, Julian, meaning the 10-month Roman calendar, and Hebrew. But as Clifton demonstrated elsewhere, the Judean Hebrew calendar had itself diverged from the ancient Hebrew calendar, and we may never know when to celebrate the birth of Christ. In any event, true Christians should celebrate his birth every day by honoring him and being obedient to him. So now, under another subtitle, Clifton writes, most likely time of birth. The time of the birth of Joshua is hidden in scripture at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. I don't necessarily agree with this, but Clifton was actually taken by this Ernest Martin. I I mean, it kind of makes sense, but it's not a necessary interpretation. It speaks in these verses, Clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet. Quoting excerpts from the birth of Christ recalculated, pages 145 to 149, it could well be that John intended the woman to represent a constellation that the two primary luminaries transverse, and what is in reality, is that the woman represents the children of Israel with the 12 stars around her head. That's the reality. But that's okay. We'll ride with Ernest Martin. Recall that astronomical signs dominated the thinking of most people in the first century. And of course, that was true. She could be just like television dominates the thinking of most people today, they didn't have television back then, so they watched the sky at night. And that is true. She could be, in a symbolic way, a constellation located within the normal paths of the sun and moon. The only sign of a woman which exists along the ecliptic is that of Virgo the Virgin. And that goes back to the Maseroth, the Zodiac, and, and the fact that the Zodiac did originally tell a Christian story even before Christ, but that's a totally different topic. In the period of Christ's birth, the son entered the head position of the woman about August 13th and exited from her feet about October 2nd. But the apostle John saw the scene. When, and, and it's not talking about the sun staying in the sky for a month and a half. What it's talking about is the sunrise and sunset. Each day is in a slightly different place on the belt of the zodiac, which is above the horizon. So on August 13th, it would the sun would rise in a place where, where the woman's head was. And on October 2nd, by then, it would move down towards the 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 it would I'm sorry, it would move up towards the north or down towards the south. I had it right the first time. It would move down towards the south each morning, the sun just goes a little increment down towards the south where it rises, and it would be at the feet of Virgo instead of at the head. So that's true if you watch where the sun rises every morning, that it travels, that the sunrise and sunset go north and south, and that's because of the seasons, and and I don't want to get into the whole flat earth debate, so I'll leave it there, because I don't believe the earth is flat. Well, Clifton continues, but the Apostle John saw the scene when the sun clothes or adorns the woman located somewhere mid-bodied of the woman. This clothing of the woman by the sun occurs for a 20-day period each year. The position of the moon in John's vision could pinpoint the nativity to within a day, perhaps to an hour period or less. This may seem absurd, but it is entirely possible. The key is the moon. The apostle said it was located under her feet, since the feet of Virgo, the virgin, represent the last seven degrees of the constellation. Because these constellations, which are really ancient constructs that are artificial constructs, you can't really see a virgin in in the sky. But the way that the ancients pictured (laughs) images made from the stars in the sky, they stayed very constant for thousands of years and they're still with us today. So we still have a cluster of stars along the horizon that are considered to be Virgo, the Virgin and the horizon being 360 degrees in a circle around us. Each constellation is approximately 30 degrees of the sky. 30 times 12 equals 360 in this belt of the Maseroth, or the Zodiac, as we call it. Maseroth being the Hebrew word that seems to describe it. So each constellation being 30 degrees of the horizon, approximately at least. The feet of the Virgo the Virgin represent the last 7 degrees of the constellation. That's a pretty big feet, if you ask me. I'm sorry. The moon has to be positioned somewhere under that seven degree arc. According to this, his interpretation of this vision in John, he's trying to liken the woman in John to Virgo the Virgin, when I would say that the woman in John actually represents the 12 tribes collectively of the children of Israel who are the bride of God. It's possible that both allegories could be true. So I'll leave it at that. I just don't know where I could turn to reproduce what Ernest Martin claims to be seeing, where I could go to reproduce what the sky looked like from the perspective of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. I I don't know where to go to see that and and to ascertain that this is true. I don't know. I'm not an astronomer. I don't do that. I read Greek. I don't do astronomy. I'm sorry. (sighs) But the moon also has to be in that exact location when the sun is mid-body to Virgo. In the year 3 BC, these two factors came to precise agreement for less than two hours, as observed from Palestine or Patmos on September 11th. The relationship began about 6.15 p.m., sunset, and lasted until around 7.45 p.m., moonset. This is the only day in the whole year that this could have taken place. The Apostle John said this heavenly relationship occurred at the time of Christ's birth. That's the way it's portrayed in the Revelation, but that's not necessarily the way John meant it, but it could be possible. And in 3 BC, this exact combination of celestial factors happened just after sunset on only one day, September 11th, 9-11. Imagine that. It could not have occurred at any other time of the year. Indeed, even one day before, on September 10th, the moon was still located above the feet of the Virgin, while one day beyond, on September 12th, the moon had moved so far beyond the feet of the Virgin that it was positioned at least 25 diameters of the moon to the east of her feet. That would be an awful large section of the horizon. Thus, only one day will do, and that time was just after sunrise on September 11th. (sighs) I won't talk about the implications of that. This particular day just happened to be Tishri 1, 3 BC, or the blowing of the trumpets, a yearly Sabbath. Now, it makes sense that Christ would be born at the Feast of Trumpets. It is only reasonable that Yahshua was born on such a day. Being born on this day would give 15 days for his cleansing time after the birth before being presented openly at his first Feast of Tabernacles with his people in the temple in Jerusalem. It is doubtful that Yahweh would have used the Feast of Tabernacles for an event of uncleanness. This is not the only implication of Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, but I will not get into that here. And of course, these are Clifton's comments in response to the things said by Ernest Martin. And on the surface, all of this sounds wonderful and generally agrees with my own estimation of the time of the birth of Christ from the historical data available in Luke but I am not certain whether the astrological information is correct or even by what methods it may be verified. I do not even think that Revelation 12 must be interpreted in that manner because there's a clear interpretation of the meaning, but I guess that it being the Word of God, both allegories are possible. Of course they are, but I can't say that Ernest Martin is correct. Clifton seems to have had faith in him. Now continuing with Clifton. Now that we have found a probable date of Yahshua's birth, even to within an hour, let us figure just when he would have been conceived. If his birth was September 11, 3 BC, and we subtract 266 days, this would make the incarnation, December 19th, 4 BC. The onset of Mary's last menstrual period before the conception would have been 280 days before the birth, or December 5th, 4 BC. If all of this is true, we should celebrate the incarnation on Tishri 1, which is a yearly Sabbath Israelites should be observing anyway. Tishri 1 would be a fitting day for Yahshua's birth as the number 1 stands for beginning. And that was a new start for us with Yahweh. As it works out from Tishri 1 to the Day of Atonement is 10 days, with an additional 5 days to the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, the 10th letter is Yod, and the 5th Hebrew letter is He, which makes up the ineffable ineffable name. The Jews, not wanting to use the sacred name, chose to use the numbers 9 plus 6 in its place to represent the number 15, which has no significance whatever. And he's citing numbers in Scripture by Bullinger on page 257. And one caveat is Bullinger, who got most of that information from the Talmud. Now, if he's being critical of it, that's fine. That's good, and he seems to be being critical of it in that spot, but Bullinger also seems to have accepted a lot of things that the Jews wrote in their Talmud and in their Kabbalah without being so critical. So I'm critical of Bullinger and his numbers in Scripture for that. Another caveat is the fact that that not all gestation periods are 266 days, and sometimes, with some women, in some cases, with some children, it can last up to a month longer. Now, under another subtitle, which addresses another ill-begotten Roman Catholic doctrine, the Annunciation, and Clifton writes, the following quote is taken from the World Book Encyclopedia, Volume 1, page 481. Annunciation Day is observed on March 25th in the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and Eastern Orthodox Churches. Of course, they have to celebrate it on March 25th in order to arrive at the birth of Christ on December 25th. That should be completely obvious. It honors the occasion when Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And should not be confused, and I'll explain this in a second, should not be confused with the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which is a doctrine that Mary was without sin. Annunciation Day was celebrated as early as the 400s, the 5th century. Of course, you're not going to find any of this trash being celebrated by Paul and the Apostles of Christ. (sighs) And it was given its date so as to be exactly nine months before December 25th, the day chosen to honor Christ's birth. Now, the so-called Immaculate Conception is a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, which claims that somehow Mary herself was conceived without original sin. And, of course, original sin, that concept is also a Catholic heresy. The Roman Catholic Church has entire sets of heresies and lies, which it teaches, one piled atop the other in almost never-ending fashion. They virtually worship Mary, calling her a perpetual virgin, when the scripture plainly states that Mary had at least five other children—James, Joseph, jude And at least two sisters were the sisters and brothers of the Lord, of Yahshua Christ. Now returning to Clifton. It is not hard to see from this. Someone back in the early centuries AD was tampering with the dates. Well, of course they were. Because they were really pagans. For the Annunciation should have taken place sometime in the month of December 4 BC. This is a long way from March 25th. Not only did they change this date, they changed the dates for the conception and birth of John the Baptist. Well, of course, they would have to. We know, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 36, that Elizabeth was in her sixth month when Gabriel announced to Mary the conception and birth of Joshua. If all this is true, John's approximate birth date should have been somewhere near March 18, 3 B.C., his conception near June twenty-fifth, 4 B.C. But as Elizabeth was well stricken in years, i.e. Clifton has, for example, in menopause, she was not having regular menstrual periods as Mary. It is true that when a woman nears the time when she can no longer have children, that her menstrual periods become very irregular. They come and go maybe a month here, two months here, and then they don't have them for a couple of months. Now, under a subtitle, The Incarnation a Mystery, Clifton writes Throughout history, the Incarnation has remained a mystery. Theologians have grappled and argued over this issue since the time of the birth of Joshua. At the first ecumenical or general council of Nicaea, I'll say Nicaea, even though I would pronounce it Nicaea. A.D. 325, this became one of the main controversies to be solved. So they thought, from that time on, creed after creed was written to state the exact position of the church fathers. Some of them were very lengthy and in intricate detail. It seemed that no one could adequately put it into words. The Council of Nicaea did give it a valiant try. Quoting now from the History of the Church by G.E. Hageman, page 60, as follows. This is a decree of Nicaea. We believe in one God, the Almighty Father, or the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. Well, okay, I'm not going to argue with this. I'll just read it. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, but he had to be both, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, and it was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven. Notice they stop short of saying that he was the father who came down, which is absolutely true. Or about 500 scriptures are lies. He suffered, and the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost, period. That's all they say about the Holy Ghost, according to Gene Hageman at the First Council of Nicaea. And those who say there was a time when he, the Son, was not, and he was made out of nothing or out of another substance or thing, or that the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church because they just couldn't grasp the fact that Christ was God who came down and was made a man. They just couldn't grasp that, but the scriptures insist upon it. When you believe what the scriptures say in both Hebrews and John and Isaiah, when you believe what the scriptures say there and in Genesis, there's no other rational conclusion. We have already given our opinions here. And while this statement may lead one to believe in a so-called trinity, it is clear from Scripture that Christ is the substance or person of God the Father and not the substance or person of himself, as Paul of Tarsus explains in Hebrews chapter 1. By his own words in John chapters 14 and 15, Christ is both the Father, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinitarians would make the invisible God a person, which is tantamount to idolatry as it forms God in the image of man. Yet the scripture says that Christ is the person and image of God in a man. To the Trinitarians... One plus one equals three, while to Christians, one and one and one equals one, as they are all manifestations of the same God. But counting the Word, which was God, the light, which is of God, the rock in the desert, and all of the other manifestations of God before Christ, he cannot even be limited even to that or contained by such a man-made definition as Trinity. According to his word, the same God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one. They are not three. The Son and the Holy Spirit do not have their own persons. The Son is his person. And the Holy Spirit is an emanation or a projection or an essence or however you want to explain it. It's the spirit of him, as Clifton explained. It's his power. It's his power being projected into the world where he wants it. Now Clifton concludes his paper and says, It is regrettable that they didn't know about chromosomes in their day, or they could have made a better Nicene creed. They did quite well under the circumstances, though especially where they state being of one substance with the father. Had they known more about the chromosomes of the substance, they would have understood the it is my process much better. Wow, I'm sorry. It seems to be a, they would have understood the process much better. There must be a typo there even though they stated this very important truth they stated this very important truth they still leaned towards three separate deities at the time of this council there was a controversy about the arian heresy the arian view was that Yahshua was inferior to yahweh or christ was inferior to god arianism supposedly believed in one god but yet it taught that Jesus was inferior to the Father, thus believing in two separate deities, and so the controversy continues to this very day. As I have said before in my commentaries, although I may not remember where, I am persuaded that the Trinity doctrine is actually a compromise, and it leaves open an aspect of God which is void of Christ and which Jews, and later Muslims, could claim to worship. Yet Christ himself had said that no man could get to the Father except through him. There is only one Abrahamic religion, and that is Christianity. There is only one God, and Yahshua Christ is the physical manifestation of that God in the world. That is what Paul was explaining when he said that Yahshua Christ was the fullness of the divinity bodily. When he said that Yahshua Christ is the image of the substance of God or the person of God. The Trinitarians can point out the times when Christ spoke of or prayed to the Father, but none of that refutes what we have presented here. They have a simplistic view of the ministry and purpose of Christ. Yahweh God came as a man in order to die as a man, and to do so, he had to live as a man. And doing that, he lived as an example to men. Once the apostles realized that he was resurrected from among the dead, only then did Thomas exclaim, and John recorded his exclamation, that Christ was my Lord and my God. The revelation. That Yahshua Christ is God came only after the resurrection in spite of his many statements which affirm that he is God, which he had made during his ministry. There are many other proofs in scripture that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh manifest in the flesh, which we may present here at another time. We have already presented most of them in our commentary on the Gospel of John. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the only, one and only God of Israel, who is also Yahshua Christ. And good night.